When I hear James say things like what he just said uh, when he opened up our service tonight, it reminds me of a passage of Scripture. Uh, Philippians chapter... Chapter 3 and verse 17 where it says, Brethren... Join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And I don't think that, uh, I, I know that I don't. I don't tell men like James and, and Ken and Jaylee and, and a lot of the men that I see in the audience in, uh, in front of me tonight uh, how much I appreciate them and their example and commitment to God's word and willingness to to correct one another when it's necessary and to ensure that that all things that we're saying and teaching that we're speaking in uh as of the oracles of god that we're that uh, we're making sure that the the things that we say are in accordance with god's word and his will and uh and i appreciate james so much for his dedication to that um i i do want to influence us a little bit tonight to take this opportunity um and and so you guys have heard me say it many times and several times even recently uh this notion that uh that we are sinners that 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 is somehow our identity uh, and so i want to present some scriptures tonight that will influence us that that is not our identity you have saints and sinners uh and to the extent that you have been buried in death with Christ in the watery grave of baptism, forgiven of your sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and walk in the newness of life, uh, you ought not to be standing up anywhere, especially as a congregation, and saying, I am a sinner. And I want to explain what I mean by that a little bit. Now, I've said it enough times recently that if there were scripture to the contrary... If I were somehow mistaken in believing that, that someone would have corrected me by now, and they have not. Uh, and so I'm, I'm starting to, to feel more confidence in, uh, in what I believe about the scriptures that teach me about that. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we've been studying John quite a bit lately. Scott is presenting John uh, on a, in the Sunday morning Bible class, so I hope that you've been following along with that. And if not, uh, whether you're here in person with us or or uh, uh, watching online, uh, go back and start from the beginning and uh, and catch up on those because he's been presenting some excellent lessons. I think uh, he may have been having some the, some of the same difficulty that I had with the minor prophets over the summer quarter, and that is that you only had the summer quarter to present them when uh, you could easily take the minor prophets and and teach that for a year uh, and and even longer than that. So you have to condense what you need to teach quite a bit uh, but I think the objective there is to whet the appetite of the congregation so that they go and study those things on their own and remember what I've said about uh, about the analogy of uh, uh, supplements and and your meals right um, you eat your meals uh, generally speaking we we eat three meals breakfast lunch and dinner we have our meals and then we supplement that diet with uh, vitamins and, and other types of supplements and things, you know, on, on minerals on the side, right? But the meals are the main thing. The supplements just supplement the meals. 
your study on your own. What you study, studying God's Word when you're not here during the three times that we meet every week and any other times that we might meet. Your time on your own, studying and reading God's Word, that's the meal. The time that we spend here together, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, the classes, and Wednesday night, that's the supplement. Okay? And I think that's what God expects from us with regard to the study of His Word. I am a man who reads the Word of God every day, and I go to it often. Uh, I have it accessible and available everywhere, and that's not boasting. I'm not boasting about that. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, I'm up here teaching a lesson to you. So that, that should be at the least a qualification. And so take comfort in knowing that I do that. But we're studying John. Uh, Scott's presenting John. So I want to talk a little bit about John. Uh, and I believe Bob ha- did this morning as well. Talked about John some. Uh, but Scott mentioned and in his first lesson, uh, and, and Bob mentioned this morning, that John's thesis, his objective statement, if you would, his purpose for writing the book of John, he gives to us at the end in John chapter 20. And you look at verse 30 and 31 where he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's the thesis, the objective statement. And you ask, well, why would he put it at the end of the book of John and not at the beginning? Well, it's not very different from what we see in John chapter 1 and verse 12, is it? Let's look at that. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And take note that he says, As many who received him, them he gave the right to become children of God. To become, that's a process. And becoming something is a result of a process. And so, it's uh, no surprise that John does this again in 1 John. Let's look at 1 John where he expresses a very similar thesis there for that book. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, it's the same John that wrote the book of John, by the way, same guy. Same guy, different book, later on, right? And he says here, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Hmm. So how do we process that? John's writing things to us so that we may not sin. Look at John chapter 8. In John chapter eight, uh, uh, and and the little the little title that uh, that uh, whoever produced this Bible wrote at the beginning of John chapter eight, there in verse one says, "An adulteress faces the light of the world." Right. So this is a woman caught in the very act, and there were men gathered ready to stone her uh, in accordance with what they believe was right. And so, 
Jesus, in verse 7, raising himself up, said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convinced of their by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And it makes sense that the oldest would leave first. There's some, you know, wisdom comes with age, right? And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Sin no more. So there we have in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 the thesis or objective statement of that book saying that these things are written so that you would not sin. And here he tells a woman caught in the very act of sin to go and sin no more. Uh, at the lectureship a couple of years ago down in uh, uh, down in uh, south of here, help me out. Soldatna, thank you. You'll understand when you're my age. So down south here in Soldatna, a preacher from uh, uh, from Juneau, maybe Gary Souza, I get the names mixed up, but uh, he preached a sermon, and in his sermon he talked about Romans chapter 7 and 8. So if you read Romans chapter 7 and stop there, then you... You know, you might you might feel like it's appropriate to have a preacher stand up here and tell the congregation, stand up with me and repeat after me, I am a sinner, right? For a congregation to believe that that is their identity. But the preacher there from uh, from Juno uh, said that if you study 7 and 8 in context together, uh, you, you see there in the transition from 7 to 8 that until Jesus... So that was Paul's condition until Jesus. And then if you read chapter 8, it makes you feel the way God does about sin. God abhors sin. He hates it. Um, Now it's important to understand that there is some modern uh, theological philosophy uh, that occasionally has even found its way into the church that says that you know, God came up with sin. God was the one that uh, that put sin into place because of its its critical role in the in the, the whole process from from the Alpha to the Omega. That that uh, that so basically, you know, God's okay with it. Uh, he's the one that put it there so that it was part of the process and give people opportunity to repent and be saved and all this stuff. Um, but I can't find that in Scripture. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says that that sin was something that was put in place by God. Uh, you know, we see the, the onset of sin uh, in Genesis with Adam and Eve and their disobedience in the garden. And then God has created us with free will to make a choice whether to sin or not. And all I can find everywhere in Scripture tells me not to do it, that it's unacceptable that he abhors sin he hates sin sin is what separates man from god and it is not god's will that man is separated from him it is god's will that that all men are saved and so we're gonna we're gonna look at that in romans chapter six but first let's start out back in john chapter two in john chapter two 
a little bit of a refresher on some of the things I talked about in a Devo a few weeks ago. So, you know, we, we had read there in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31 where, where John's purpose for writing the book is that we might believe. And as a matter of fact, belief is the theme of the book of John. Uh, the, uh, the, the word believe and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and other, other words that mean the same thing are used 98 times, at least 98 times in the book of John I read. And so really a good thing to do is go through the book of John, highlight the word believe or, uh, or the words that are like it every time you see that and then go back and study each one of them in context to see how John got his point across uh, as he was directed by the Holy Spirit in his writing. So, in John chapter 1 and 12, we said, As many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So he's on task right from the beginning. And then, in John chapter 2, And verse 11 says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He's on task, focused on believing. And then down in verse 22 says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, uh, where he talked about uh, 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 rebuilding the temple in three days. He remembered his, they remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And then it immediately goes into verse 23 where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so that's a little bit scary there, verse 25, where it says, 24 and 25, where it says, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now when you back up to verse 23 and it says, okay, well, let's back up and see what went wrong here. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Okay, sounds good to me, right? But he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And remember, that's a broad sweeping statement. Jesus knows all men. And then more specifically, getting to the heart of man, it says he knew what was in man, me and you. He knows what is in us. And and we should be relieved to hear that. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Jesus knows everything. He is omniscient. We've studied that before. All-knowing. Jesus and God know all things. Look at uh, John chapter 6 and verse 64. John 6 and 64, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So Jesus knows who does not believe, and he knew that Judas would betray him. That came as no surprise to him. And that was obvious when we study uh, the, uh, the night in the upper room. 
And look at 21.17. John 21.17. So as we know, uh, Simon Peter had betrayed Jesus. Um, Jesus had predicted this, and then it happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And then here, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 21, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said, this to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus also recognized, Peter also recognized that Jesus did indeed know all things. Look at chapter 16 and verse 30 of John. Staying in John for a little while here. Start with verse 29. John 16 and 29. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. But what concerns us about... John chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25 where it says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them. To who? Those who believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. That he did not commit himself to them. Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify for he knew what was in man. It gets scary there, but why? So... uh, We've talked several times about how the chapter and verse divisions added by man where they started to chat. Let's start a new chapter here that that these were added by man. God didn't do that. The book of John was one letter. Um, And so it it seems like uh, where chapter 3 begins might not be a good place to have started a new chapter because of the strong relationship between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. There are often times in Scripture where a concept... uh, is presented, and then the support comes after that. Uh, and and here I'm using the New King James Version. It leaves out the word now at the beginning of verse 1, chapter 3. Uh, but I know it's in, uh, in some of the other versions where it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And so remember that chapter 3 is just a continuation of chapter 2. So the concept is presented. The concept that there, there might be a type of belief that is not a saving belief. So what's missing? He says, well, let me give you an example. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. So Nicodemus represents those of verse 23 and 24 from the previous chapter. 
there's something that was missing. There's something that Nicodemus didn't add to his belief after having seen the signs that Jesus did. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let's back up for a second and look at this. Look at, look at what Nicodemus first says to Jesus. Uh, up in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay. And when you look at Jesus' response to him, his answer, it's, it doesn't even appear to be related to what Nicodemus is asking him about. It's like he completely changed the subject. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is controlling the conversation here. He's like, this is what we're going to talk about. First things first. We're going to talk about the most important thing first. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Jesus goes on to explain, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's important to back up there to verse 6 where it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Earlier we talked about Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, and the relationship between those two chapters kind of being a before and after, right? With Jesus in the middle as as the catalyst, as the transition there. And you read chapter 8 and you'll understand more about what is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit there and in many other passages. But for now, let's go to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to tie these two things together. First, we talked a little bit about sin. And then we talked about the fact that Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. Now, I said that that should be a relief to us. The reason for that is uh, we need to speak to our Father often. We need to pray to Him. We need to pray Uh, without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. Um, And I've said it before in the class that, uh, uh, in the summer quarter, that uh, if the things that are going on in the world right now and have been going on for a while haven't caused you to pray more, more fervently and more actively and more often and more deeply with more meaning than you ever have before, then nothing will. I don't know that anything will. We've got to make sure that we're doing that. And then knowing that Jesus is omniscient and looking at all those examples just in the book of John, indicating that Jesus knows the heart of man, he knows what is in us, relieves us of the temptation not to be honest with him in our prayer. 
There is nothing about you that he does not already know. You've never committed an action or a sin or done anything. He has understood better your motives than you do. He knows you better than anyone else in your life. If you ask me who knows me better than anyone else, I would say my wife. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking and obviously time together. We live together and uh, we communicate a lot. She know, knows me better than anyone, but she really doesn't. Jesus knows me better than her because he knows the thoughts and intents of my hearts. The thoughts and intent of, uh, intents of my heart. Um, Hebrews 4.12 Jesus knows my every thought, my every motive, my every mistake, sin, my objectives, my long-term goals. He knows everything that's in my heart even better than I do. Which gives me the freedom to be amazingly honest with Him. And when we pray to our God, we lay all things bare. Lay it all out in the open. That's why the Bible tells us to weep, mourn, and wail about our sin. In Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Beginning in verse 1, that grace may abound. Shall we continue in sin? Now, this kind of tells me that I ought not to be standing up anywhere as a, a faithful Christian and saying, I am a sinner. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. Tense is very important. Past tense, present tense, future tense, these things are very important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll start with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. Past tense. It's very important for us to understand that the world's logic, right? And remember, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Read John chapter 17. The world's logic says, if you used to drink too much, whether it be five years ago or 20 years ago, then you are an alcoholic, present tense. Maybe you haven't had a drink in 20 years. You stopped drinking. You repented from the sin of being a drunkard, like it says there in verse 10. You've repented from that many years ago. Or even if it was just last week. You repent. And God intends for our repentance to be a a deliberate act with permanent results. Then you are no longer a drunkard. But if you go to an AA meeting, you're going to be convinced. You'll be convinced there by worldly logic that you are an alcoholic. And that you must always call yourself that because at one time in your life, you drank too much. 
The same applies to drug, drug addiction or any other sin, whether it be one of the ones listed here or not. Such were some of you. So what am I now? First John. First John chapter 1 and verse 7. And this is the tip of the iceberg. You just come back later when you have more time and keep reading. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Back to Romans 6, and we'll wrap it up there. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's Jesus' answer to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Right? Lest man is born again of the water and of the Spirit, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. He told the woman who's caught in the very act, go and sin no more. If you find yourself repenting for the same thing every day, then we need to talk about that. God can help you fix that. God doesn't want you to continue committing that sin if that if that's a burden for you. And your brothers and sisters can help you with their prayers. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And then it goes on in 15 to say, What then? Shall we sin because we are now under law but not under grace? Certainly not. Again, he repeats, No, we do not continue in sin. And so here we have uh, Paul in the book of Romans teaching us, the fine details of baptism and how it works. Jesus died, he was buried and resurrected. And we die when we go down into the watery grave. And we're resurrected to walk in a newness of life. And the old man has died, has been put away. And we walk in a newness of life, a new man. Um, and I heard uh, one preacher uh, describe it beautifully when, when he explained that baptism is not something that you do. It's something you allow to be done to you, for you. 
It is an act of submission. And think about how appropriate and beautiful that is, that that being cleansed of your sins to walk in that newness of life, to, to, to die, to rise and walk with Christ, is an act of submission. Your very first act as a Christian is an act of submission to the Lord. And so the invitation is yours. If, uh, if you haven't uh, made that commitment, if you haven't been baptized, perhaps you don't understand it fully, that's something that we'd like to study with you. We'll teach you what God's Word says about that and help you in your decision to obey, to commit your life to Christ and the watery grave of baptism to uh, be added to his body, the church, over which he is the head, and to walk in that newness of life with all of us here who have have done that as we stand and sing. Mm-hmm.